One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the Ruck Podcast from the Times and Sunday Times. My name is Alan Dimmock and I'm steering the ship yet again, but not on my own. This time we've got the veritable Stuart Barnes from the ST with us. Stuart, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. You better say the Times as well, otherwise we'll all be getting in hot water. Well, we're all part of the same big family, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. So what did you make of that weekend of rugby, Stuart? I mean, the North Rising. It was um, it was a fascinating weekend. Um, there was, I thought, it, it started with an absolute masterclass of game management by Ireland, and it finished with a, a, a win Scotland needed. I, you know, I it didn't cross my mind that they could win all four. Um, none of the games, other than no, none of the games I, I felt beforehand. Uh, the European teams were without a chance, but I, I, I couldn't see them all winning. And uh, it, it, what I would say, um, you know, it wasn't all the greatest rugby ever, but it makes for a great third week uh, of series. And and it's a reminder that having um, global tournaments every five minutes isn't necessarily uh, the only way to have an outstanding international rugby. The series works. I've always believed that uh, what you don't, what doesn't work uh, so much is South Africa playing Ireland, Wales, Scotland, Italy, England playing Ireland, uh, Australia and New Zealand on the road. Have a series and you can really generate something very exciting. And and that's somehow how we've we've found ourselves uh, heading towards week three. Well, if you haven't quite picked up on it, then it it was a monumental weekend of Test Rugby. England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales all won uh, away from home in the Southern Hemisphere. And we'll be digging into all of it. We've got an update from our mate Will Kelleher, who's down under for about England levelling their series one all against the Wallabies. We'll also be getting stuck into Ireland and Wales, their historic victories in New Zealand and South Africa. And our very own Mark Palmer joins us from South America. But first up... Here's Will from Brisbane. Hello, everyone. And if you can hear Ed Sheeran in the background, then I apologise. But uh, I'll explain why at the end of this. But just a little update from Australia. England have won the second test, levelled the series. Really good win, actually. In the first half an hour, we set the tone in that Ellis Games carryover. Michael Hooper was outstanding, wasn't it? Um, And then the last 20 minutes, too clinical, that maul down the left hand side after an hour, rolled on for 
25 or so metres. Outstanding. Good work from Johnny Hill and Mako Vunapola in that. And it was a win I think England really needed um, after a lot of soul searching, a lot of talk about building for the World Cup. You probably, if you did, listen to our last podcast between Alex and I. Um, heard the like frustration in our voice, I suppose, about this constant talk about jam tomorrow and building for the future. But it was noticeable after the game and before it actually that lots of the players were saying we just want to win and that's what they did they played well and they won the game and I think England fans would be pretty happy with that and it completed quite a remarkable weekend for the Southern Hemisphere where for the first time ever sorry for the Northern Hemisphere because for the first time ever they all beat Southern Hemisphere opposition on the same day so Australia New Zealand and South Africa all lost at home on the same day for the first time in Test Rugby history and that if that isn't a top stat then I don't know what is um, so you're going to hear lots more about England Australia there's one more game to go from Alex Lowe he's now down in Sydney which is the reason why I'm recording this on my own because I'm actually sitting in the departure lounge of Brisbane Airport hence our friend Ed which you might be able to hear in the background I'm not sure if we've I'm going to have to pay the royalties to Ed but he's probably got enough dosh so he'll be alright but yeah I'm having to jet back home um, as my uh, sister's getting married so massive congratulations to Emma and Adam this weekend um, bit of a last minute trip to get out in the first place and now I'm dashing back so um, I need to head off in a minute um, but I will update you when I get back and hopefully to be on, on the ruck soon as and then possibly a little bit of a summer off because we've been rucking all the way from September it's been a hell of a ride uh, but for now I might get myself a beer and then try and sleep because it's a hell of a little journey home but I hope you've enjoyed our updates from the ground down under and see you on the other side so Stuart we've just heard from Will Kelleher there he's he's sadly heading back from Brisbane but he got to see an England win uh, but beforehand just in general terms masterclass from England in that second test just what was needed what the doctor ordered what did you make of it in general terms nowhere near a masterclass no I mean that, <laughs> that was the Irish performance and you have to reflect on the fact that uh, Australia don't have the depth that perhaps uh, a few nations like South Africa, New Zealand and England have. And, and they are on the ropes with injuries during games. It's hammering them. And, you, you, you know, facts do sometimes get in the way of a very good story. But that is a reflection. Uh, but what I would say was, um, I think, as Will said, uh, it looked like a team who wanted to win and all the nonsense about it's good practice for uh, France 2023 was shown up for what it was. Uh, England reverted to type. Uh, when it mattered, the forwards were able to take control. Uh, Will talked about the 25 metre drive at the hour point was crucial. Sacked Australia. Uh, the try in the first few minutes was equally uh, a psychological blow in the sense that uh, Australia in the first test handled England's line out drive pretty well. Uh, England produced a, a quite beautiful, breathtakingly uh, intricate uh, line-out drive to, to smash their way through. And that symbolised the game because I felt that uh, 
Genge was involved in that. George, Vunipola, uh, Itoje till he went off injured. And all these blokes had really big games. But it, it, let's not kid ourselves. This wasn't England developing their game. This was England saying, OK, the, the clever running angles and decoys of last week, we'll, we'll just throw them away and we'll go back to something else. And it was something else that we recognised. Well, um, I'll tell you what, Stuart, you say it's maybe not, a development thing but just taking the example of that try that pushover try for example uh, as as my mate Charlie Morgan pointed out today he showed a clip of England trying an almost identical line out move against Wales during the Six Nations and it not coming off tweaked perfected came off brilliantly uh, against the Wallabies okay there was maybe a little bit of afters from Ellis Genge that wasn't needed but Ellis Genge was in that sort of bullocking mood Um did it feel at least like you, you mentioned there that it's uh, a revert to type, but when the type is that successful, why the hell not? Is this the kind of game plan from England's forwards that you, you think needs to be used more going forward? Yeah, I, I think at the moment, the strength of the England team would be in their forwards. Therefore, you utilise your strengths. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, the problem was England became obsessed with it couple of years ago so all they did was kick for territory and try and pressurize and put a squeeze so what i would say was against an australia team that perhaps isn't quite so denuded of um key players england might be asked to do something different and we didn't see that on saturday Mm. but that's not Mm. taken away um from from the the victory for england because it was a pressurized occasion had they lost that game you know God knows what the mood would be like in Sydney this week. It would be horrendous. Um, so it's a big win for England, but it doesn't answer all the questions. It's not a masterclass. Um, Smith and Farrell are still struggling to come to terms mm. uh, with each other and the requirements of Eddie Jones. And until that is addressed, then England are, are not going to be capable of, of putting together uh, 15-man rugby. So so readers of The Times will, will know that Stuart's written a, a brilliant article today about this very subject, about the cohesion in the midfield for England, um, you know, talking about Smith and how the game plan's not maybe not quite tailored for him and he's, he's having to find his feet a little bit. So if you could tell us a bit more about, about your thinking with that, Stuart, and is, is it time the answer, uh, time in the harness together the answer for Smith at 10 with this game plan or does the game plan need tweaked? Um, I... I think I like the idea of varying the kicks, but there was too much uh, in terms of kicking early on. There, there wasn't enough. Smith wasn't allowed to bring his running game uh, into play. He he didn't get in Australian faces. As I said today, when Dan Carter, and I'll include Stephen Larkham as well, because I got a text from Brian Ashton saying, don't forget Larkham. Um, <laughs> Those were tens who would just mix it up in the first couple of minutes just to make defenders wonder what's coming next. And if you can make a defence question itself, you've got a split second and you can act. And what we've seen from Marcus Smith um, at his best is that when he's got that split second and that change of pace, he's through. But right now, in the first test, England were looking to, 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 to use angles and decoys and keep the ball in hand, and Australia read it. And in the second test, England were looking to kick a lot, albeit high balls, chips, reverse kicks, but all of them were being done from so deep. And this is not a defence of Smith because his execution 
wasn't very good. And in fact, in the first test, uh, normally a sublime passer, he, he passed quite inaccurately. Uh, and what I think we're seeing is an extremely talented young fly half just feeling the pressure. And, and, and I can tell you, you know, when you don't feel as if a, a test team is set out for the way you like to play, it can be quite difficult. And, and I just get the feeling that's how it is with Smith at the moment. And that's why I said in the Times today, I would like Jones to say to Smith in the first 20 minutes, run the show. I'd like him to say to Farrell, just be alongside him, play the game and and just get into it that way. And then England can find the variety of, of their game. But right now, the variety isn't coming from um, 8, 9, 10 and 12. The variety seems set out pre-match. And that's another instance, I think, of, of game planning that doesn't function because it, it's too stereotyped, it's too static, it's too, in the end, readable. And if Australia, you know, Australia have a smart coach in David Rennie, um, they will watch what England do and England will not be able to play the same sort of game. Um, so it's going to be fascinating. I just want variety from England, whilst I would say um, more of the same from the forwards. Jones and Farrell, of course, two men famous for relinquishing control and being happy about that. Well, absolutely, but it was always it was always going to be the issue, and England have still got to find out effectively can they function uh, with two fly halves uh, and and a twelve that isn't getting them over the gain line. It's been a question that's been you know it, it's 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 leaked its way through Eddie Jones's tenure in England. Once it was Ford and Farrell, uh, and now it's it's Smith and Farrell. Um, and and you look at players like Karevi and Henshaw who went very well. And you just think most teams would want a big carry in 12. I felt Esther Hazen um, didn't hit the mark for South Africa and the Springboks really missed uh, their main man, uh, Dialende, and I thought that was significant. So England are trying to play a slightly different game to the rest of the world. And I'm not saying that's wrong because to be the pace setter, you've got to do something different. But... England have got to make a way for this to, to be successful, for their differences to have a, 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 a sort of justification. Um, just one thing I wanted to, to pick up on, Stuart, and it's the idea of control, because maybe it's a bit of a theme of the week, the idea of control, but possibly team control, because there was a moment for the Wallabies where England weren't really at, you know, there was a sort of tricky middle period where they weren't really what they'd been in the, the minutes previously, and... Australia could have had opportunities, but we had Lolesio missing kicks to touch. We had line-out balls that weren't hitting their target. Courtney Laws was winning turnovers. You know, England sort of did enough to survive the period when they probably weren't playing at their best. Do you think ultimately that's what it came down to? Is even if Smith and Farrell wasn't as cohesive and as as silky as as many would like, that there was enough team control. Maybe that comes down to the forwards again. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I. I it always controls not the theme of the week control is the theme of the history of sport sure uh, uh, uh djokovic played against an inspiring australian on sunday but the aussie was never going to win because djokovic was able to control himself the shape of a tennis match it's always the same it's about control and and because england in the end 
their strength was up front. They were able to get some form of control. The question, of course, is always against a more powerful pack. If that doesn't work, what then? And that's always been the question mark of England. But generally, Al, I, I'm 100% in agreement with you. It is about control. And you mentioned the Australians, and I thought that's fascinating because um, in the first half and, and in the second test, uh, Lolo Sio um, played well, but he's inexperienced and he does have a history of, of struggling under pressure. They brought on because of the multiple injuries, uh, James O'Connor, who had a dreadful 20 minutes. He looked like he was still in the corporate box they hauled him out of in Perth the week before. He was putting kicks into touch when Australia had overlaps. He made fundamental errors in that period of the game when, as you rightly say, Australia had pulled their way back into it. There was a moment they stole a line out. It was a double missed pass from Australia when England were only five ahead. And uh, O'Connor fired a dreadful kick out on the full. And that was, for me, the turning point. So, you know, you can't hide away from the facts that Quade Cooper playing for Australia changes Australia in that game. It, it makes a big difference. So, Huge credit to England. They were under pressure to win, and that makes it harder. Um, but, you know, you, you have to reflect on what you're up against. And it was an Australian team uh, that had their controllers off the field from before the start. There is something that I'm, I was almost reticent to bring it up, uh, Stuart, but there's, uh, you know, we can sometimes be... A, a bit obsessed with officiating but it seems like in Australia more than anywhere else there's a focus on the deliberate knockdown uh, the approach to that in law and and cardings for that it's been mentioned a couple of times even Eddie Jones himself came out after the game and and had something to say about that I, I think well, <laughs> there's no way we're avoiding talking about cards and I, I've got a job on my hands explaining what the hell happened with the New Zealand Ireland game and, and players coming on and off the park but this chat of deliberate knockdown for a start, but also the, the, I think the phrase Ian Foster used was card festival um, at, at the weekend. Is there an element that these coaches just need to... What you say in public is one thing, but we've got to accept that this is the way that the game is at the moment, or do you think that... Do you agree with Eddie and uh, others that it's sort of slipping out of control a little bit? Uh, I, I think uh, the most important thing for observers for for journalists to do at this moment is to agree with the likes of Eddie Jones. Um, Eddie Jones wasn't making some whinging comment about the game. He was making a broad statement and he was absolutely right. I, 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 I watch and listen to people, TMOs, and when I hear them talking about attempted intercepts, when someone puts their hand out and they're knocking the ball up and trying to go for it, and yet we end up with a penalty stroke yellow card so many times. You just feel there is a fundamental lack of feel um, for the game of rugby union. And, and when that happens, the easiest thing for officials to do uh, is to make big draconian calls and to give people cards. And, you know, if you, I mean, watching one game, it drives you around the bend. You you watch four on a, on a, on a Saturday and you just feel this, horrendous trend it's a it's a juggernaut of pettiness coming from the officials and I think Jones and Foster should be back to the hill uh, there is no defense for it um this we're not I'm not talking here about the argument about 
shoulders into heads. I'm not talking sure. about concussion. Yeah. I'm talking about the pettiness of decisions and the inability of referees to get it right. And I'll say another thing here, which I think is linked to it, because TMOs are in the ears all the time, we are seeing poorer live refereeing. And by that, I mean obvious forward passes that aren't picked up because referees now are just waiting for someone else to help them. There was an Argentinian try against Scotland where there was a pass right to left 40 metres out. It must have been two metres forward. Uh, Argentina then went on through myriad phases to score a very fine try. And I found myself at the end of it, when we went back for the TMO saying, I'm looking for a forward pass here. I found myself very confused because I'm thinking the ref should have picked that up, but it's about 10 phases on and we're now going back and canceling it. Let's just go back and rewind from the start of the game because we'll find something to cancel everything. If you look hard enough in rugby union, you will be able to find a reason to go back all the time. Someone a millimetre in at the side. So at what stage do we just say it has to be within a couple of phases and there has to be TMOs should be looking for illegalities. They shouldn't be looking for something unless it's immediately affecting the game itself. Because as I say, if you go back far enough, you're going to find something. And I get the feeling that our officiating at the moment is based around trying to find as much as possible. Now, being 100% right doesn't make for a good game of rugby. It makes for a broken, disjointed game that lasts about two hours. And I think it's very important to stand up and say, I think Eddie Jones 100% right on this. There you have it. An appeal for more feel, which rhymes and I didn't even mean that to happen. Nice, but Nicely, nicely put. Yeah. And, and I think it's an important distinction that it's we're not talking about head injuries here and, and protecting players, and that's that's something that we're unavoidable. We're going to have to get into when we talk uh, talk about um, Ireland's momentous first victory on New Zealand soil. But just just lastly, uh, if you're Dave Rennie, uh, third test and heading to a decider test, as you mentioned, phenomenal for the game, particularly in a country like Australia, where you know rugby needs every leg up it can get. Um, that we're heading to Sydney for a decider. There'll hopefully be a, a fair bit of razzmatazz around this all. If you're Dave Rennie, what tactical changes would you make to take on this England team and the decider? Al, to be honest, and, and, until we know just how threadbare the Australian team is or isn't, it's really it's really difficult to know. Um, I, I, I don't know what they can do. They've lost so many key players in key positions, like second row, fly half, fullback. Um, Australia are up against it. Uh, I mean, what do they do? Right now, you know, I, until I saw who's available, I couldn't even begin to think, what the hell is Dave Rennie going to do here? Sure. You know, right now, uh, I would say praying is the best thing, but I'm an atheist. <laughs> And maybe Dave is too, I don't know. It's worth pointing out as well that Marwa Toji's on the plane home uh, to England That's and as is Sam Underhill. So England aren't without um, the, their travails themselves. They're not bringing anyone in. Um, so it'll be uh, it'll be differences in, in personnel selections on either chance. But I think we oh, can yeah. agree, Stuart, that it'll be a tactical challenge if you're a coach. Yeah, it, it'll certainly be a challenge all round. Um Rennie versus Jones is going to be quite important and then it's a matter of just liberating the players 
not to follow um, the orders too tightly. But that how Eddie Jones and how Dave Rennie set out their teams is important. It's then a matter of how the players execute it and have the freedom to come off script. And I think England will probably feel that they can play a tighter game and will therefore stay more uh, on cue. And I think whatever David Rennie says, there will have to be a freedom in the Australian team at times to just say, we've got to do something else. We've, we've got to twist a bit. Um, England, yes, you know, England have got their fair share of injuries and they went there with a few. But we've got to remember, um, England probably have, uh, no, not probably, England have greater strength in depth than Australian rugby. And I love the way that Dave Rennie keeps saying, I'm not, I don't want to talk about the injuries. I want to talk about the chances for players. He's doing the right thing, but there is a reality to this. And, and you know, Australia are stretched a bit. If they could have uh, that big lump from La Rochelle, that would help them. <laughs> Absolutely. Perfect. Well, plenty to look forward to in Sydney this weekend. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to dig into Wales' uh, victory in South Africa. But f- uh, up first, Ireland, special day in New Zealand. Okay, so here we go. We're going to start off talking about Ireland versus New Zealand. And I think I'm just going to pull the pin out and let you go, Stuart. What did you make of that test match? I just thought it was one of the the great uh, tactical victories uh, of recent times. I thought uh, Andy Farrell just turned around the first test quite brilliantly. The way Ireland used kickers outside Sexton and Gibson Park to shift New Zealand around and to control territory in the first half when it was 15 against 15 was quite magnificent. You know, in the end, New Zealand had players down and red cards and yellow cards, but 15 v 15, Ireland were in complete control. Uh, So my man of the weekend by a mile is Andy Farrell, but I thought Hmm. Sexton had a plan and... You know, his passing was, was wonderful. He, 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 New Zealand wanted to hit Sexton. Everyone always wants to hit poor old Johnny Sexton. And he said, come on, come to me. And he threw little miss passes and Ringrose and Hanson and Lowe and Keenan were just kicking balls. And they weren't, when England play, how many kicks land straight down the throats of the opposing men? Seven out of 10, eight out of 10. Nothing was landing in New Zealand hand. They were pinned backwards. So it was it, it, it was a wonderful way of how to use the boot in a tactical sense. And if you understand the game, it was glorious to see. Then you get on to the individuals. And I Porter, very good. Sexton, outstanding. Uh, then you come to two others. One, uh, Peter Omani. I got a lot of stick. Uh, I'm, at the moment, I'm, I'm calling it, inverted commas, my world team of the week for the Sunday Times. And after the first week in defeat, I put Peter Omani there because I thought he was spellbinding. Uh, and I got a lot of stick, I think predominantly from uh, English fans, saying, what the hell is he doing there? Um, but this guy just gets better and better. And that 50-22 will be remembered in Irish rugby history mm. forever. But and he loves, he loves guy, playing New Zealand as well, it has to be said. He loves it. He winds them up. He turns them inside out. I, Did he not call I Sam Kane a rubbish um, Richie McCaw at one point? I think they, someone overheard that on the mics. I wrote that a week earlier. 
and he is. And it was the right thing to say. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> Sam Kane is a rubbish Richie McCaw, and Ian Foster <laughs> is a rubbish selector if he doesn't come to his senses and understand that soon. Um, well, so with, with that, with that, because there's a lot of chat of the best. Um, people were saying that you know between Artie Savia and Dalton Papali, they have probably the two best sevens in the country. But they're persisting with this figurehead. I, I, I will give me a second, right? Because this, I'm going to have to explain here. Artie Savia didn't get got taken off and didn't come back on. In a nutshell, New Zealand at one point should have been playing with twelve players on the pitch, but they didn't. We had uh, a yellow card for Tonga Fassi. When it came to scrum time, you need to be able to have uh, a front row. So Angus Taavo came on for Dalton Papali'i. He then got a red card and went off as, as a temporary replacement. And then there was a scrum. Now, if you remember that situation in the Ireland game in the Six Nations where they had to go an extra player down because you need to have a competitive front row, New Zealand should have taken another player off to have a front row player come on. So they should have been playing with 12. As happened, Artie Savea went off. They ended up playing with 13 when they should have been playing for tw- playing with 12. And then we had this bizarre situation where when the time was up for the yellow card, they should have been out 14 and they had 15 players on the pitch. Confusion reigned. Jacko Piper had to come in and try and sort it all out. I think the only person in the world that enjoyed that moment from the officials was probably Nick Berry, who I'd imagine has quite a fractious relationship with Jacko Piper after the... Um, the Lions Gate and everything that happened with the the Erasmus hearing and all that sort of stuff. But pretty unedifying stuff. Confusion reigns all round and eventually we had 14 players on the pitch. But amongst them was Ardi Sevilla, who really, it should have been Papa Lee that didn't come back on, but we missed Ardi Sevilla. I suppose what I'm trying to say is, if you're going to lose anyone to this level, um, Ardi Sevilla is the last player you probably want to lose. Is that right, Stuart? He's the... I don't know if he's their best player. Um, Aaron Smith and Barrett are ex- exceptional, but he's their most important player. There's no doubt about that. And, you know, he, he's probably probably the best seven in the world at the moment, and he's playing eight. Um, it, it was just that, that, that error, that mistake, what happened in the end with Kane staying on and him not being able to get back on almost... It's symbolised. I understand. I, I, I know what you're saying, and it, it was complex, but it symbolised the error that New Zealand's management are making at the moment. Um, Kane's just not good enough. Uh, he, he's not, and he hasn't been. And this has been Ian Foster's selection from day one. And there's a lot of people, you know, when you criticise New Zealand open side captains, uh, you, you're going to come under fire. Uh, I find a lot of people contacting me saying we've always said this um you're not telling us anything we don't know and then they go on the offense about foster and i i look at um taking smith and barrett off at that stage i look at rico yuani playing 13 um when he's such a destructive wing but his distribution isn't great and seeing new zealand not being clear uh in their management of a team and, and so that takes us back to Saturday's game in Ireland uh, with, with complete clarification. And finally, um, if New Zealand had 14 men, Ireland had 16 because uh, Tag Byrne was two men rolled into one. He may have been three. Um, I never thought I'd see an Irishman 
play better than I saw uh, Paul O'Connell play at Croker Park um, that first game back against England when he was monumental. In a different way, I thought Byrne was even better as a second row uh, who dominated the back row. A, a, a quite astonishing uh, game of rugby. Yeah, it's crazy to say as well that during that period of hokey-cokey when players were coming in and out and in and out, we didn't know how many it was, that Ireland actually didn't really capitalise during that period either uh, against fewer men. Um, I mean, you could say that that's, that's one of the weird quirks of rugby that that sometimes happens when they've got teams are galvanised by having fewer players on the park. But still, it was, I mean, you mentioned the tactical, tactical brilliance of Ireland. It seems almost a lifetime ago from last week as well. You know, we'd we'd sort of. It almost feels like we're we're sitting here, and it was maybe last week was the upset. I don't know. Does it feel like that's the direction of travel at the moment? Famous last words from me here because we've got a decider to come. But you know, it's it's certainly, although it's the first Irish win on Kiwi soil, there doesn't seem to be any aura there anymore. There is no fear. I mean, Andy Farrell is it six times as a coach now? He's he's been with Ireland and defeated the All Blacks. I mean. Forget talking about fear. I mean, they must be absolutely relishing what's coming up next week. I mean, the days can't pass quick enough. No, I, I before Ireland went on tour, I fully expected them to win at least one match. But I'd have said New Zealand to win the series because of home advantage. Um, so in a way, the big shot is the first test. Uh, and the way Ireland have rebounded tactically uh, and physically and mentally is just it's wonderful. And the question's on New Zealand now. And I, I, I can't wait for this test match because New Zealand, again, I have to think, we're going to have to check this Irish game because we can't be running out from our 22, our 40-metre line all the time as we were in that first half and allowing Sexton just to turn the screw against us. They've got to come up with another game plan. They've got to find a way to put uh, the other kickers under even greater pressure. And when that happens... That enables Sexton and company to find little holes for those pop passes that he's so adroit at. So I think it, it, it's really fascinating. I think Andy Farrell is formulating a strategy that will take you through to France 2023. Uh, the question is now, is Ian Foster good enough to come up with a counter strategy, uh, which New Zealand historically have always done brilliantly, but can he do it uh, before the third test? And I think if the answer is no, and Ireland can win this series, uh, New Zealand have got to be looking for a, a new coach. God, I mean, they've got to go to Scott Robertson and just come up with something fundamentally different because time is running out. So this is a, a mega game. To, to think of New Zealand perhaps having to change their entire managerial structure one year out from the World Cup is it, spellbinding. And Ireland, it, it puts them back where I thought they and France were before we went away on these tours, right up there at the top of the tree. By the way, just at uh, this section, it's, it's it's worth pointing out, people might have missed it this weekend, France are officially, for the first time in their history, yes. the number one test team in the world rankings. Uh, they've sort of operated under radar a little bit, maybe because the games in Japan have been so tight that that's probably been a good thing. It was a, it was probably an emotional weekend in, in Japan that, that we've just had uh, a lot of talk about the assassination of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who did an awful lot to bring the Rugby World Cup to Japan in 2019. And it was a hell of a, a performance and uh, against France. And 
that team did just enough to get by in the end against Japan and they've got the benefits of it. They're number one in the world for the first time ever. It just feels like something's happening and even if it just tees up uh, a phenomenal next weekend, there's a, there's a sense that it, there was something to be happy about uh, for those in the Northern Hemisphere. There, I want to segue slightly here though, Stuart, because we were talking about great sevens and based on some performances at the weekend, I contacted some folk at Leicester Tigers to, to get um, a bit of intel on Tommy Raphael uh, to find out mm. a bit about him. And what I got back was that this the process of hard work, you know, it, it wasn't a rocket, a runaway rocket ship, that he flew into the top of the game. He has been working tirelessly for years to get to this position where he is now. And I, I heard a lot of chat about the extras that he does, uh, everyone at Leicester Tigers is fond of doing extras after training on their breakdown work. But for Tommy Raphael, it is to a point of obsession for him. Uh, he's done an awful lot of work with Brett Deacon um, on his, his breakdown work. And it's something that he's identified as where he can be a, a difference maker. Yes, everyone works on their weaknesses, tries to improve their other strengths. But for him, stealing ball at the breakdown is almost everything uh, from what I can gather and he does lots and lots of work on it because he's not the the biggest forward he's operating in a in a league with a lot of monsters around but he's identified this as something that he can make a real difference at and he's had to struggle to get his work his way into the starting team as a regular for Tigers he's done that and now after a performance against the Springboks um, starting for Wales it's a hell of an introduction to Test Rugby and he looks so comfortable there. What did you make of Tommy Raphael and his breakdown work against uh, the Springboks? He was the only Welshman I had in uh, the Barnes World 15. Uh, and, you know, when you think most of the best players in the world were playing outside of, you know, South Africa's first teamers and and Surveyor getting taken off instead of playing seven, everyone's playing and he stood out. Stood out above all. I thought he was outstanding last week. I thought he was even better this week. I, I thought uh, he had a, a major role in the, the nullification of uh, Esther Hazen. Yeah, I did see uh, that. He took the ball off him like he was taking candy from a baby at one point, which is, I, I can't remember the last time I saw that. No, he knew his, his angles, his lines. It's not just the, the, the strength and technique. It's the, the, the awareness, the knowledge, the rugby intelligence to know how to play the game. He he was fantastic. I, I thought, I don't, I don't know who was the official man of the match, but he was the best player on that part by a country mile. And it's it's great. I mean, obviously the producer Alfie, who who, who works on the show here with us, is uh, does some commentary. And he was commentating on the game last week and speaking, and he commentated on the game this week as well. And he was saying to me uh, before we got on mic here that last week, Wales deserved to win and didn't and this week probably were second best in a lot of scenarios but got got the win it's it's also worth noting when you think of where, what Gareth Anscombe's been through with horrific injury and coming through to kick to kick a winner from the touchline is 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 incredible story but it's just sort of that idea of the end result this is one of those where the end result is what matters more than anything else the performance might not have been the sexiest you've seen and players like Tommy Raphael really put their hand up but it was it's just a collective will is that the sense that you got Stuart? Yeah I, I do think here um, I know there's an old phrase don't let facts get in the way of a good story and I and I, I do think it's great that Wales have finally won in South Africa but this is no comparison 
with Ireland beating a full strength All Blacks. The, the reality is that Ebenet's a better part. There was not fir- no first team starter on that field at the game started. Uh, there were two of the bomb squad came on, and in Damien Valenzi, you could say there was a fourth guy there or thereabouts in the first 23. This was a second stroke, third team South Africa. And that has to be recognised because the history books will say Wales won and that's wonderful. Uh, But it was a a pretty awful game of rugby, as was the first test. You know, we're not that far from the realm of the Lions series, you know, when people were saying the Lions won, isn't it great? And I was going, I don't want to watch rugby if it's like that. And it was brave of Wales. It was wonderful that they won there. But there are major question marks about the South African World Cup winning team in the first test because they were so limited in the way they played. And this second one, you know, it, it tells you that uh, Nina Barr is looking for a squad to take him through to France. That was the purpose of this game. It wasn't about winning or losing. Uh, and he's got a problem because there's a lot of players out there who are nowhere near the international mark. So whilst I say... Uh, what a kick, Gareth Anscombe. What a performance, Rafael. What a pass, Gareth Anscombe, for the winning score. What bravery from Wales. You know, the weird thing is, the real, the really impressive effort from Wales was the first test against the full-on Springboks. This was a, a far inferior um, performance. And, and I think one has to say, you know, let's judge the success of this tour on what happens Saturday. Uh, Will South Africa come back and find another level? If Wales lose narrowly to the full-strength Springboks, then they've done extremely well. Uh, If they go and lose by 40 points, then the history books will show, yeah, they won the second test, but you know what? It was nothing to do with reality. So I think we've just got to be a little bit... A little bit cautious, and I know I'll get a stick for this from my old friends where I was uh, brought up in Newport, but that is the reality. You know, if... Well, Stuart, Stuart, let's take it a step further, because before this game, we had popular figures like Gareth Edwards saying that it was an insult to pick a team like this. Some people could say, well, for an insult, it was still pretty damn close. Um you know, do you do you see it as as disrespect to put out a side like that for South Africa, or do you understand where Jacques Nienaber is coming from? Because by the evidence of their their strong strong team uh, the the week before, they still could have still could have lost it, and it's maybe maybe that set off some alarm bells for them, worrying about what happens if some key players go down in the, in the Rugby World Cup. I get the feeling, and I have heard that. This was always on the plan, no matter what would have happened in, in, in the first test. I, I don't buy okay. the disrespect line because, you know, international rugby is about winning, but it is also about when you're at a certain stage in your development, it is about prioritising. And South Africa thought they could win this game. And they've probably thought, even if we don't win, we'll learn more. It may be that South Africa could end up uh, beating France in the World Cup final and the fact that about 19 blokes were so far below the mark that they got blown out of the manager's mind in terms of a contention um, will be what steers them home. You know, it is, it's not about the next game. I, I understand what Gareth is saying, but it's not just about playing the next game. And from a South African perspective, they will hate it if they lose the third test. But they'll be able to live uh, with a, a second stroke third team losing the second test. It's no big deal to them. 
The third yeah. test is a big deal. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I've seen a lot of chat already about, oh, Jack Nee and Abba, is, is he up to at this job? And it's, I mean, <laughs> that says more about the competitive, like just how competitive and passionate the fans are more than anything uh, based in reality, particularly considering how well he works hand in glove with Rassi Erasmus. You know, I, I don't think there's any real pressure uh, on them behind closed doors. But yes, incredibly, incredibly proud nation and Jacques Nienaber will want to win this third test. But I, I, yeah, I imagine we're going to see a completely different makeup of, of the side in that one. Okay, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, you're going to hear from Mark Palmer, who's out in Argentina, on what was a much needed win for Scotland. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Joined on the line now by Mark Palmer. I suppose we start our section with you on this every week now with Marcus. Where the hell in the world are you right now? I am still in Salta, a venue for Scotland's magnificent second test win, which of course we all predicted last week. Um, the team are staying on here until the back end of this week before heading on to Santiago del Estero, which we're led to believe is not exactly the um, a bustling metropolis. So they've taken the decision to stay here um, for another few days and just kind of go in and out for the match. So we have stayed as well. Okay. Shall we jump right into the game, Mark? Uh, basically, yes. how much did uh, Hamish Watson change the complexion of these this test series then? 
Yes, yes, um, magnificently so. Uh, although a word also for, for for Rory Darge, I thought the two of them in tandem in the back row were, were exceptional and changed just changed the whole dynamic of of Scotland's approach and effectiveness. Um, the uh, you know as flat a performance as they produced in the the first test. This one uh, was uh, as as effervescent. It was it was fantastic. The um, certainly in the second half. First half, at least you could kind of see what they were trying to do, which itself was a, a step on from from last weekend, where there was just no kind of clear tactical, tactical approach coming through. Uh, never mind actually trying to, to execute it. Um, and then after half time in the, uh, here in, in in Salta, they really kind of went direct, which again is a bit of a milestone for this team because they, they actually took on a more physically dominant opponent, which they have never been able to do really up to now, uh, and, uh, and succeeded. Um, went direct, scored some some good close range tries, and, and won the game. So yes, a, a much happier uh, a much happier outcome. What what change is it? Is that just a mentality change? Because it's all well and good saying. Oh, I mean, if, uh, it feels like we sit here before a test match every single time and go, well, the, the coach reckons that they've got to take on the opposition up front. But Scotland actually delivered on that. Is that as simple as a couple key personnel members come in slash stand up uh, and make themselves counted, or is it a, a, a tactical change? What, what did you think? Because it was still pretty sloppy in the first half, but it seemed to click in the it second. Was. Well, I, I, as you say, I don't think we can underestimate the the, um, the the impact of bringing players back of the quality of uh, of Watson and Darge. But um, I was speaking to Matt Ferguson after the game, who I thought actually probably had one of his best best matches in a Scotland shirt, scored his first try as well for, for good measure. But he was saying that the players themselves at halftime, because of course you know he asked the obvious question, what was said at halftime, and he said even before the coaches came in, the players had got together with themselves and said, look, we're playing far too loose here playing into their hands, we need to go straight up the middle. Um, and so they'd kind of collectively uh, sort of vowed to go that way uh, before the coaches came down, and So uh, who then, of course, reiterated the same message. So I think there, there was obviously a kind of, you know, a desire from the players to, to fix it themselves, which, uh, you know, it hasn't always been the case from Scotland. You know, we've, we've bemoaned a lack, of, a lack of leadership on field and ability to sort of fix things on the run. Um, so, so that's encouraging, and I think yeah, the, the, just that general flatness of the first game. You know, they turned up, you know, knowing full well they were going to get a, a, a really emotional, passionate backlash from from Argentina, their first test in, in three years at home, and they just seemed utterly ill prepared for it. Um, so I don't know if you know a flick, a, a switch was flicked in, in training last week to catch yourselves on. You know, you know what's coming. Let, let us actually stand up and be counted here, but. Uh, uh, whatever the combination of things was, it, it, it amounted to a, a, a much more successful outcome. And is uh, scrum coach Peter De Villiers purring after the game? Oh yes, absolutely. Um, that was uh, catnip for him, I think. Um, wasn't wasn't perfect, but certainly again, I thought you know Schumann and, and Xander Ferguson probably had one of their their best games as well for Scotland, both in both in the tight and the, and the loose. Um, they were also those two plus Sam Skinner, the two back row, what three back row guys we've been talking about. Also helped out Blair Kinghorn a lot at the time when he was playing at ten. That he was just kind of offering themselves to, to carry the ball into heavy traffic, which again had not been happening up in Huhui. Easy for you to say. Um, so the, you know he, he, there wasn't as much sort of onus on Kinghorn to be trying to pull in, be pulling flowers from his from his nether regions. So uh, um, it, it, all round, it was just a much more kind of. Uh, a much more sort of structured and, and, and successful approach. Actually, it's, it's probably worth bringing in a, a fabled fly half for, for his view at this point, because Stuart, <laughs> um, 
there's been a lot made of what Kinghorn can and can't do uh, at, at fly half. Um, obviously, he was under a hell of a lot of pressure last week. Uh, come, turned around a bit this week, but w- with a player like that with very little experience at the top end at fly half period, let alone at, at test level, um, you know, effectively one big season under his belt with that number on his back. Uh, would you? Does it need like? Does it need to be the perfect forwards performance to let that guy flourish, or you know, d- does he need to stand up and do something special as well? You know, to prove that he deserves a jersey. Would you expect to see from a a fly half in a position like his? Uh, control is the key word, uh, but what I would be saying is he, he he's very inexperienced at test level. Uh, instinctively, it's funny enough because Carreras has been doing a tremendous job as a as a fly half who's played fullback for Gloucester all season uh, for Argentina. But you know, you've had a couple of internationals and people are, are looking at, and I've, I've I've seen Scottish comments saying no, 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 he's he's not a fly half. He may not be. The point is, he has to be given an opportunity. If Gregor Townsend thinks this experiment has been worth undertaking, then he has to start again in the next game. And, and there are bits and pieces to his game. I like Carreras. I like the way both fly halves in this series aren't scared to run the ball. Um, things have come off for Carreras. And they haven't for Kinghorn. Uh, at the moment, you wouldn't say the experiment has been a success, but I have to reiterate, you know, experiments start from nowhere and they go wrong and wrong and wrong before you come up with the right answer. And he might be the answer, but it's just very early. What I, what I would say is uh, there's no doubt at all um, that the second row was solid. That the front row was exceptional for Scotland and the back row was quite brilliant. And, and like Mark, um, it seemed to me the narrative was all about Hamish Watson coming back and he had an outstanding game, but but I thought Darge was the uh, pick of all the Scottish teams. And behind him at scrum half, I felt Ben White just manipulated things really well. He didn't panic when it wasn't quite clicking in the first half. And he galvanised Scotland um, in the second half when he was on. So, you know, I, I thought this was a very solid performance by Scotland. Um they neutered Argentina's strength uh, as strong ball carriers, uh, and they picked a couple of very nice lines from, from Bennett and Johnson uh, to, 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 to perforate the defence. So I, I'd give it a seven and a half for Scotland. It's a good win in Argentina. No doubt about it. And, and Mark, just, just to, to look at um, what lies ahead... You know, okay, it's one game apiece. What, what's what's the mood like on the ground? Is is it going to be kitchen sink and the neighbours' kitchen sink as well thrown thrown at Scotland uh, when when you travel? What's what what are we expecting? Exactly that. I mean, that was kind of the, the first question I asked Grant Gilchrist after the game was, you know, Scotland or Argentina got Scotland's backlash. What what is theirs going to be like? And you know, he he was absolutely on board with that. They know that. Um, exactly what's coming. Um, Argentina didn't really get. I say they didn't really get going at all on Saturday. They still had three or four try scoring opportunities. There was some exceptional last ditch defence from Scotland, and a couple of kind of TMO breaks went their way. So you know it, it could have been a lot tighter on the scoreboard. But um, it, you know they they having been in their eyes kind of humbled at home this week. There, there's absolutely no doubt they will be coming out flying next week in the in the decider. So. Again, Scotland will have to replicate that ability to stand up in the physical fight, um, show a bit of balls, for want of a better expression. And um, 
it'll be intriguing to see what they do selection-wise because um, you know we're, we're talking there about about Kinghorn, but both um, Hutchinson and uh, Kyle Rowe are looking. Well, Kyle Rowe definitely out of that game, and Hutchinson looking almost certainly with with injuries that they picked up here in Salta. So. Uh, Kinghorn slotted back in at 15 uh, when those injuries happened uh, with, with Ross Thompson coming on at 10 uh, and it may well be that they have to go with that same approach uh, this weekend unless they give a, an Ollie Smith or a, or a Darcy Graham a shot at 15 so um, there may be a little bit of juggling but um, yes, fingers crossed it will be a repeat of the second rather than the first Thank you to Mark Palmer for joining us from Salta. Um, hopefully we'll have an update on where he is and, and importantly, Stuart, what he's been eating and drinking uh, when we hear back from him next week. Just a few uh, points of order to, to wrap up the show. It's worth mentioning that Georgia beat Italy at the weekend. A, a genuinely a seismic result. Uh, 28-19 for them. And Stuart, I don't know how much of him you've seen, 19-year-old fullback uh, David Niniashvili was a real superstar in that game for Georgia. Have you seen much from him for Leon uh, in the season just gone by? And and what do you make of that result for Georgia? A big old, big old result for them. It's a great result for for Georgia. It, it's a wonderful result for the sport because it just reminds us that we can't just. Uh, put a fence up and close off other countries. So I am thoroughly delighted. That's got nothing to do uh, with any animosity towards Italy, a country I love and a rugby country I love, but I'm delighted Georgia won. And Niniashvili, I have watched him a lot uh, playing for Lyon. And it, it doesn't surprise me that Quiu was the man who scored the sniping try to give France a win against Japan because he and Niniashvili for Lyon uh, I felt were outstanding every time I saw them play in the last few months of the season. And uh, it's great to see a, a, a young winger from Georgia because Georgia, we just think big, hefty forwards who eat and drink like Mark Palmer. <laughs> Here we have someone who is dazzling. Uh, an Eastern European, Shane Williams, is born. Great. Yeah. I mean, if you if you are on any of the panels for... World Rugby Awards at the end of the year, there tends to be a sort of bias towards some of the top, top, top tier nations for, I say, young player, young world player of the year. Please put this guy in your thoughts because he's a hell of a player. Um, just another couple of results. Namibia have made their way to the, the Rugby World Cup. They, they won the Africa Rugby uh, Cup against Kenya in the final 36-0. So they go into Pool A where they've got the easy task of playing against France and New Zealand. Um, the Kenya will go into the final qualifying tournament where they will play whoever loses in the USA Chile playoff. U- USA edged Chile twenty two twenty one in their in their playoff. They now head to Denver where there's one point in it. Chile could still make the first rugby world cup in their history. USA have got at the slightest of advantages, but they are playing at home. And just one last thing from that game: if you get an opportunity to watch to watch the highlights. Check out Rodrigo Fernandez's try because ridiculous. I, I'm dubbing it the the try from the edge of Atlantis because it was a waterlogged pitch. He dodged seven or eight defenders to go in and score it. Absolutely sensational stuff. Um, if there was a moment of the weekend outside of the um, the big home nations winning in the Southern Hemisphere, it's got to be that one. Um, just exceptional stuff. So that's that. That's the ruck for this week. Uh, thank you for listening. Please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get it. 
Thank you to Stuart for joining us as a guest and thank you to Alfie for producing it. And we'll join you next week with the deciders, hey, from these test series in the Southern Hemisphere. It's going to be a big one. Listener.